This is the Author Archive podcast. This edition of the Author Archive is a conversation I had with the Scottish writer Ian Banks. Now, Ian died 10 years ago of cancer when he was 59. He was a very charismatic author. Some authors aren't good with an audience. Ian Banks was splendid with an audience. He had two personas. There was Ian Banks, who wrote regular novels, and there was Ian M. Banks, who wrote science fiction. This conversation is with Ian Banks. It was about a book that was new then, which struck me as a series of rants. Uh, The book came out, and it was called Dead Air, and its central character was a radio personality. So I empathised with it. I resonated with it. Ian had this remarkable lifestyle. He reckoned that he could support himself, produce enough books by working two two months a year, something like that. And the rest of the time, he was an avid vehicle collector. He collected cars. He had a, a Land Rover. But I, th- I seem to remember he also had motorbikes. And he showed me once a wall map of where he lived. And around it were lots of roads and footpaths. And um, in and around that were lots of coloured lines. And whatever vehicle he'd used to go around, he marked the journey with a colour-coded trail, um, whichever vehicle, so he knew where he'd been in which car. Um, but it seemed an enviable lifestyle, working two two months a year and <laughs> driving around beautiful Scotland for the rest of the time. Anyway, um, he he was a splendid interviewee. I always enjoyed meeting him. And I started this conversation by saying, yeah, OK, this seems to be a book of rants, Ian. Uh, well, in a sense, it goes back to like the summer of 2001 when I was doing my usual morning constitutional sort of walk around my, around my village. And I realised I had these sort of rants, various sort of things, some of which were political, some of which weren't. Um, and I was wondering how I could, as you do, you think, how, how can I use this in a book? You know, um, and it suddenly struck me that actually what I had basically had was the idea for a character that, that the what these rants, these polemics built up to was really... Um, you know, a character, maybe a caricature of uh, you know, a character for, for a novel. And um, then it was kind of down to just going back through some old ideas uh, that I'd had for a while that um, you could shuffle them together to see if they'll stick to the present project, which I've been doing for years, you know. And there's ideas that have been um, thrown out. You know, I think about throwing socks at walls, and if, you know, <laughs> if they stick, then, you know, time to put them into the, into the wash. Um, it's a bit like that with ideas on different novels. So there's various ideas that have been, you know, seedily thrown at lots of different novels over the course of the years and um, uh, fallen off again. Uh, and uh, one or two were used this time. Again, just going back to sort of uh, daft ideas and just, uh, you know, um, uh, rants and polemics and so on. Uh, and there was one thing I had about, I was trying to work out a way of getting sort of tension into a scene where someone's um, trapped inside a house with the burglar alarm on. This wasn't actually in the end used in, in the novel, um, but I was trying to, I thought that uh, something about the idea that you had to move very slowly because PIR, you know, passive infrared sensors, um, they only react when you when something moves at a certain speed that's warm with them. All sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, just, just mention of that, you have to have your wits about you when reading one of your books. What's the name 
Um, it, it came to me then it's gone again. What's the name for that vessel, that vase that's four-dimensional where the spout ends up inside it? Oh, it's a Klein, Klein bottle. A Klein bottle, yeah. yes, because that appears in here. Um, yes, some, bizarrely, it's, uh, uh, somebody's mother um, makes, uh, makes the character a, um, a, a, a hat. Klein bottle hat. It's kind of a mixture of a Rastafarian type hat and a Klein bottle, you know. It's probably a world first, I imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just one of these things. I was trying to get across some of the... Uh, in that case, it's one of these um, relative sort of minor characters, supporting characters, as it were. And I wanted him to have like an, an, a, a kind of exotic and exciting sort of uh, you know, past history and sort of slightly um, uh, mad family, but also to be, be an edge of, sort of intellectualism about them as well. Because you get the idea, because cause the, the guy's um, he's from South London, or you know, he speaks like that, and he's a, a very sort of famous black DJ. You kind of sort of you might sort of dismiss him in a certain way. I won't say, well, actually, no, he's actually a very, very smart guy and things like little touches like that about the Klein bottle and the fact that he knew what it was and also our main character knows what it is as well it's kind of you know saying well these aren't just as they're not as sort of, yeah. um, facile as but of as course that means that you know what it is too so uh, you do all well, of that stuff well yeah that's sheer coincidence <laughs> I once read a bit about it in Gurek Library back in 1968 or something like that yeah but I always remember the Klein bottle and I did actually have um, come to think of it actually I just, just realised this there's um, in one of the other novels Crow Road there's a mention of a Mobius scarf Character has a Mobius oh, scarf, and that was kind of—I remember it was the same book I read. It must have had a big impression on me. This book about topology or whatever. Um, so the Mobius scarf and the Klein bottle hat. Blame me, I hadn't thought of that till now. It's a theme. Oh, it's ah, a theme. It's a theme. And when I asked you about dates, because this book <laughs> actually starts on September the eleventh, two thousand and that's yeah. Uh -huh. one, I didn't it? actually start writing it. And, uh, you know, sit down to physically type it in, as it were, until. I think it was late, uh, late January, so I'd had quite a lot of time you know, to, to think about it. Um, and I'd, it just went incredibly quickly. It's one about the fastest sort of written book that I've done, I think. Um, I took it about the same time as The Wasp Factory, but The Wasp Factory is about half the length of it. And just, I think partly because of the sort of conversational style, because it's uh, um, a radio DJ, and words you know, are, his, are his life, his livelihood, is, that's how he makes his living. Um, so it's very sort of, it is first person narrative, it's very conversational, it's a lot of, of narrative in it, of just people talking at you, him basically. And that, I think, was the reason it went so quickly. That and the fact that I'd given myself a year off as well, because I'm, I'm, I'm entering semi-retirement now. I'm, having, I'm doing a book every two years. Um, well, hang on a minute. I thought you were always in semi-retirement. Well, didn't you, didn't you <laughs> have a certain <laughs> of my friends, yes. You know, um. But you always said that you only worked sort of from over the, over the winter months anyway. Well, yeah, usually. That's why this book's slightly uh, different, because, um, yeah, I used, used to always uh, sort of write around about, from about the start of October, or maybe the start of November, if it wasn't going to be that long a book, through to about Christmas, New Year. Um, and this one, because I knew I had a, the luxury of a slightly longer sort of uh, time until publication, I thought, well, I'll leave it till after New Year, give my brain cells time to recover from Hogmanay and then, and then start. So, uh, uh, but it just, it just went very, very quickly. So, uh, I, I, although it seems there hasn't been much time by sort of normal novel writing standards to, uh, you know, assimilate what happened uh, in uh, September the 11th, so it's actually, I've actually had quite a lot of time. So, the fact the book starts on 9-11 uh, uh, and will be published within about four days of uh, the anniversary, as it were, um, it's just, things about, I, I thought you couldn't really write a novel that was set in your know, contemporary, you know, sort of time, um, and somehow not mention what happened. You know, it'd be a bizarre thing to do because I think even though it's, um, 
when the ramifications, you know, and the, the, the actions are still continuing now, but especially at the time, we just thought, yeah, the world had changed and you just couldn't ignore it. Um, and I was just trying to find a way of starting the book without, you know, in any way sort of, uh, sort of use it gratuitously. It had to be sort of, to some extent, worked into, into the narrative. But I had to just say, this is what it was like for one group of people and for one person. This is the way they reacted, where they were at the time. But actually, it had some sort of relevance. The whole thing about that at the start, where they're throwing stuff off the... Um, the old sort of uh, tall building that they're in that's going to get knocked down. That was kind of all had to be tied into this thing. And a kind of constant theme of falling and of uh, things breaking up at the, uh, throughout the whole, the whole novel. There's a great sort of descent that, that, that goes on. And one of the sort of most important scenes, the last really big important scenes in that sort of partly flooded underground car parks. You've come down all the time. And the book even starts with the words, you're breaking up. And again, there's lots of breakages that take place in the, in the book as well. You once described to me that you write Nice books and nasty books. Ah, yes. Mm. So which, uh, which, which compartment is this? Because well, this is one of, it's one of them, and it sort of veers off. And becomes the other. Yes. So it's inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. That's me too, but I've always been inconsistent. Or have I? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, I think it's, um, it's kind of, it's either a nice book with nasty bits in it or a nasty book with nice bits in it. It's sort of, um, maybe I'll actually try and achieve balance for a change. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the time, there used to be in London, um, it was a national thing, talk radio that employed shock jocks. And mm. it's bad to be a shock jock because it's, it's ever decreasing returns, isn't it? Because mm. you've got to be more shocking on every other uh, uh, You've got to be more shocking tomorrow than you were That's yesterday. That's right, yeah. You know? so, yeah. So it's... It, it's it's difficult to do that, and your guy is kind of of that genre, really. Mm. But he plays music as well, doesn't he? Oh yeah, he? yeah. And he works on uh, a radio station with an exclamation mark. Uh, yes, as he says to his, his producer at one point, uh, yeah, it's the radio station where the um, typers put in an exclamation mark rather than forgot to put in a space. You know, so it's one of these. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so, what sort of format of the show is it? Uh, well, it's mostly just uh, it's just music and, and talk about, I guess, about 50-50, and they, they have phone-ins and so on, you know, so it's kind of a sort of amalgam of all sorts of different radio um, programmes I've listened to, you know, over the years. Uh, I still have an unfortunate um, weakness for Radio 1, but, you know, it's, which in a matter of 48 is a bit sad, frankly, you know, but, um, uh, yeah, so just, it's kind of a portmanteau sort of idea of um, what radio, a radio station or radio programme might, might be like. And then you, you're very much given the idea, I think, in the books that uh, it's that sort of face-saving thing that uh, the, the, the dear owner, the guy who actually owns it, who's kind of sort of based, but it's not Richard Branson, because Branson is mentioned as well. It's obviously it's not him, because the, the, uh, the, the owner has sort of been in competition with, uh, with, with Branson. Um, he's kind of got uh, this chap there, Ken Knott, as a... Uh, sort of an excuse, as a way of, sort of saying, well, this is how sort of radical I am. I have this guy that says all these really, you know, awfully, uh, you know, left-wing or anti-corporate things. So hey, I must be pretty sort of, you know, radical guy myself. What? So it's kind of there's an, an excuse, in a way, and that's kind of hinted at. But one of the characters at one point actually turns around and says exactly that to the, to to Kenneth, to our hero. Yeah, and Ken, we, as you say, we start the book, and they're standing on this uh, on this roof, and he gently lobs, I think it's an apple, isn't it? Yeah, it technically there's a couple of little ice cubes that go off first, but those don't really count. Oh, right. I, want to, I had to start with an apple, you know, mm, biblical. Mm. So, <laughs> <laughs> he takes a bite out of the apple and, uh, and eventually throws the apple over and they start, and they see what a wonderful you know, result this causes, 100 feet below on this dark tarmac, and they start throwing off lots of other bits of fruit. 
and then they start thinking, well, the, <clears throat> this, the story is that this couple have been living in this place for two years, it's always going to get knocked down, um, and so they're going to be moving out next, the following week. Um, this is a sort of wedding breakfast they're having. Uh, and because they're going to be moving out, they've got lots of stuff in their, in their you know, flat, their apartment, that they don't really need. Um, that you know, old TVs that don't work, and because it is all because it's going to get knocked down, it doesn't matter what sort of mess they make of it. So everything starts getting thrown over the. You get a bit carried away, slightly over enthusiastic. You know, um, don't think any any persons are actually thrown over. No people involved. You know, but, but yeah, a lot of stuff gets thrown over. And and they and, and the more mess, the more joy. Basically, yeah, yeah, joy through mess. Hmm. Um, I get. Uh, I see. There is that thing. It's kind of. A, it's sort of conspicuous consumption and anti-consumerism, sort of mixed into one. You know, sort of chaotic uh, mess, basically. So it, it's kind of what to have its cake and eat it. You know, there is a minority report. Sort of um, one of the people says, you know, what are you doing? You're throwing away good food. But I only put that in because my editor made me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you're having your private polemics. Mm. Yeah, your rustic rants in Scotland, you know. <laughs> Aye, that's me. Right. I, can, I can envisage you with the bridge in the distance, mouthing this stuff quietly <laughs> in the morning. But I, I, I wonder which goes verbatim into the mouth of Ken the shock jock. Oh, he's much more articulate than what I am. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, the excuse there is that the guy is used to... to being on radio and that he's, uh, that's what he does. Um, but it's what I'm used to doing is, is writing stuff down. So I don't think I could actually stand up and do what, what he does and, and sort of real time, as it were. But he's, but he's a complete stranger to political correctness, isn't he? Uh, pretty, well, well, yes and no. I mean, he does say that um, he kind of despises the, what is called political correctness. Well, the attitude behind people that accuse people of uh, political correctness, because often political correctness is like trying to be well-behaved, trying to be polite, and it's kind of right-wing thing that says, oh, that's just political correctness. You know, in fact, it's not politically correct, you know, not to, you know, racially abuse people, or whatever. But that's what you get accused of being if you, you you choose not to express yourself in certain ways. So he actually mounts a defence for for political correctness um, as a concept in one part of the book. Although his girlfriend, who's pointed this out to him, says, "Hold on a minute, but last year you were saying exactly the opposite." He says, "Well, I'm allowed to change my mind, you know." So, so he's got a kind of ambiguous, ambivalent, whatever relationship with some political correctness. How do, how do women find him? Do they find him? Don't know yet, really. Um, <laughs> um, I haven't really had enough sort of feedback, you know, from the. the, the two no, I don't mean that in the book. I mean, the, your character, Ken, how does he get on with women? Uh, oh, far too well. That's his problem, yes. actually. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, he's. Um, Bit of autobiography. Uh, in sadly, there. no. A wish fulfillment, more like, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so he, yeah, he's a bit, bit of a lad for the ladies, don't you know? Yes. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a bit, bit, bit of a chap that way. Because hmm. girls like naughty boys? I guess that's it, yeah. It's, that's why, you know, my sex life's been so terrible all these decades, really. I'm just far too nice, damn it. You know? And also, I mean, I have been a radio disc jockey at times, and no radio station has ever given me a boat for Chelsea to live on. I mean, this guy, mm. he does live quite well, doesn't he? He does, yeah. I mean, uh, I, again, as his producer points out, that they weren't using the boat, and it does give him a tired cottage deal, basically. So he's got to be really careful. In a sense, he can, they can remove his, uh, his house as well as his sort of livelihood. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just a bit of luck. Again, I was wanting to kind of a link into... Um, uh, that, that sort of world, I wanted that sort of area, and there's, there's also, well, that kind of ties into the whole thing about Richard Branson living on a, um, yeah. living on a canal boat, and there was a hint of that, and then there's another bit where, uh, I mean, I think, apparently, I was never at one of his soirees, but um, if you went to Lord Archer's um, 
pad and asked to go to the toilet and said, oh, head towards the Picasso and turn left at the money or whatever. Okay, I've got some art, have we? Yeah. Um, again, there's a thing, but there's a very similar bit in the book uh, there as well. It's not uh, the same tower, it's actually it's down at Limehouse, whatever. So I'm just trying to get lots of little things that people who you know, would know about um, you know, Media London would go, aha, uh -huh, uh, there's a reference to that and that. So I'm just trying to sort of basically drop names without actually dropping myself in it. Well, is, is there a message? Ah, uh, there's is lots this... of messages, I suppose. Okay, yeah. give, us, give us a little <laughs> compendium of messages, things, things to chew over. Um, I suppose, basically, guys, it's what he described himself as being. He's a sort of militant liberal. He's an evangelical atheist. Um, uh, the guy, although he has very sort of dubious sort of, um, uh, sort of private morality, I think he's sort of... Uh, that's his relief from relentless, you know, sort of uber-liberalism that he espouses and tries to live by in the, in the rest of the book. So, um, yeah, it's kind of leftish, liberal, and uh, the very slight tinge of libertarian sort of uh, idealism, if you like. Um, but uh, you've really got to read the book to find out all the rest. And the book we were talking about, called Dead Air, published by Little Brown in 2002. That was The Splendid Ian Banks. 